1: Hello. In recent years, the authors of a slew of books and articles have debated whether China is moving toward or away from the rule of law. Against this end-of-history approach to legal inquiry, Ke Lee advocates for one that attends to the circumstances in which state actors select legal methodologies and those in which they prefer non-legal, extra-legal, and illegal ones. She demonstrates this approach in her new book, Marriage Unbound, State Law, Power and Inequality in Contemporary China, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Ke Li is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, City University of New York. And she's talking with me, Nick Cheesman, currently a visiting professor at the Baldy Center for Law and Social Policy University at Buffalo, and host of new books in interpretive political and social science. Kurt, thank you very much for coming onto the show and congratulations on Marriage Unbound.
2: Sure, thank you for having me. I've been thinking about this conversation for a while. Let's find out how it will unfold. (laughs)
1: I've been thinking about it too. in the book's introduction, you say that one of your goals is to offer an historically charged culturalist perspective of state legal practice in China. What do you mean by that?
2: In the book, I use the term historically charged cultural perspective as a shorthand to describe my approach to Chinese law and politics. At the minimum, this perspective is an invitation letter to readers. The message goes like this. Let's journey through the history of the People's Republic of China, also known as the PRC. Let's examine how the PRC, once a revolutionary regime, then a socialist one, today post-socialist, has developed a vested interest in controlling citizens' marriage and family life. Along this line, I invite readers to grapple with the cultural practices the PRC has deployed in hopes of calibrating and recalibrating its governing methodologies, including its interventions in citizens' intimate lives. Secondly, by formulating a historically charged, culturalist perspective, I deliver a critical response to certain literatures in such a way that I can thoughtfully engage colleagues in China studies, in political science, and in sociology. Today, China scholars have continued to debate whether the PRC is on a trajectory toward or against law. I take issue with this debate because it features a rather problematic historical narrative. In this narrative, history is singular, linear, with a built-in directionality in this narrative. We can't find much irony, contingency, or what William Suvo Jr. terms the lumpiness rather than the smoothness of temporality. In my work, I break away from this type of narration. Somewhere in chapter 3, I compare history to a river with currents, cross currents, and undercurrents, which is to say rather than singular, linear, or unidirectional. History often comprises multiple divergent and even conflictual processes. To concretize this perspective, I show in detail that the PRC in the past decades has enhanced law and shored up courts on the one hand, and has reinforced extra-legal ruling methodologies on the other. These two processes, one elevating the stature of law in governing, and the other promoting Extra legal or even illegal methods for ruling have unfolded simultaneously in contemporary China. In other words, the PRC didn't turn toward or against law categorically, as some of my colleagues have contended. Instead, it has been weaving legality and extra legality into the fabric of its governance with huge implications for ordinary citizens, including those determined to dissolve their marriages. By creating a historically charged culturalist perspective, I also critically assess the literature on authoritarian legality, a body of scholarship developed by political scientists who study law and courts in non-democratic settings. This literature, in my view, has entrenched two theoretical orientations. One is functionalism, and the other is rational choice theory. Neither of these two takes history or culture seriously. Functionalism, for example, often plunges researchers into teleological thinking to account for why authoritarian regimes like the PRC choose to buttress law and courts. Researchers implicitly or explicitly attribute causes to some trans-historical forces such as a set functional purposes or functional necessities. Hence, the argument goes like this. Authoritarian legality has functions that assist the Chinese Communist Party in its move from a revolutionary party to a ruling one. So functional necessity becomes the driving force behind history. A similar problem can be said about researchers' use of rational choice theories to account for legal developments in authoritarian states. This time, the argument becomes that autocrats, out of cost-benefit analysis, decide to boister judicial institutions and legal professionalism. But the question of how history may have shaped autocrats' preferences and how culture may have configured their efforts to interpret self-interest remain largely exogenous rather than endogenous in analysis. Finally, by promoting a historically charged culturalist perspective, I try to merge important insights from two branches of institutional analysis. One is organizational institutionalism that places culture center stage in its efforts to explain institutional changes. And the other branch is historical institutionalism, which privileges history as a key to institutional reproduction and transformation. In Chapter 4, for example, I draw on concepts such as past dependence, critical juncture, normative ideas, and cognitive ideas to analyze how the PRC's top decision makers in four decades have struggled to refashion a group of law practitioners, eventually landing themselves in policy wrangling. That analysis, to a large extent, is me paying a tribute to both organizational and historical institutionalists. In short, to readers in general, the so-named historical-charged culturalist perspective is an invitation to the past and to the semiotic reign To scholars interested in law and courts in authoritarian states, this perspective, I hope, represents a new direction in research. Finally, to political scientists and sociologists who have laid the foundation for institutional analysis, my approach to Chinese law and politics is all but homage.
1: Well, that's a tremendous summary of some of your essential objectives in the book and some of its contents as well. Let's see if we can develop some of those points further. I think one way to do that might be by coming back to the category with which the book is primarily concerned, and that's marriage, marriage law and divorce. You're indicating there in your opening remarks that you have very wide-ranging interests. Your theoretical approaches are really sophisticated, but also then how you're connecting them to the legal history and the current practices of what you call cultural appropriation in China are tremendously important. So why is it then that the book is concentrated on, and you are so much taken up with the question of marriage laws specifically, and divorce.
2: This is a long story. Around 2006, Back then, I was just a PhD student, quite clueless about what I should do with my dissertation. In that summer, I took a trip to visit my extended family in Weifeng a county about four-hour drive south of Chengdu, the capital city of Sichuan Province in southwest China. During that trip, I began hearing stories about marital disputes and divorce lawsuits in the countryside. At one point, I met a peasant who had served for decades as a barefoot doctor, one among the millions in rural China providing basic health care to community members. Thanks to that experience, this peasant had come to know about country folks' troubles at home. Sitting in his small clinic in a remote village, I listened to this man recalling one household after another torn apart because of how desperately a wife, a sister, or a a daughter-in-law tried to break free from her conjugal family in the village. So I thought to myself, hey, I could observe and document those women's struggles in divorce litigation. That would be a sociological equivalent of making a documentary on ordinary people's tangles with the Chinese official justice system. And By the way, I'm a huge fan of cinema. So from time to time, I compare my work to filmmakers' work. So for the next decade or so, I was fortunate enough to visit Wei multiple times. And that allowed me to gradually expand the scope of my investigation, including more and more actors into my study, such as judges, legal workers, village leaders, and local government officials. Over time, I managed to diversify research masters, moving from ethnographic to archival research. After I located to New York in 2017, I regularly interacted with political scientists. Many prompted me to think about the prospect of building a dialogue between sociology and political science. And I should quickly note that by training, I'm a sociologist, but currently I'm employed by a political science department at CUNY. And also at CUNY, I got the opportunity to study journalistic writing. This led me to over the possibility of incorporating journalistic writing into scholarly work. All in all, this is what I'm trying to say. As a very beginning of this long journey, I had a very simple and straightforward objective. I was going to document women's struggles. That was it. But over time, I tried to turn this project into something else. I thought about how I could advance series. I thought about if I could combine different research methods and then I dipped my toe into certain experimentation so I could incorporate journalistic writing into my work. All these efforts serve one purpose, what I'm trying to achieve in this book is to show that yes, divorce seemingly prosaic, maybe mundane, and yet it is so much more than the dissolution of marriage between two individuals. So ultimately, this is to say, you ask me about why marriage law, why divorce? And I guess my answer is because I believe that I can turn divorce into a magic crystal ball, so to speak. And through this crystal ball, I'm going to guide readers to find a lot of important and interesting phenomena out there.
1: Okay. So you write in the book that divorce suits in law courts were uncommon in China up until recently. So first of all, why is that? What is it that has caused the change? And in as much as you say that marriage in China is today more dissolvable than ever before, How is it that despite that being the case again and again, what you recount in the book, Uh, situations of women who come before administrators and adjudicators and find that the only way that they can in fact get divorce is at the cost of custody of their children, at the cost of ownership of their property, especially the ownership of land to which they're legally entitled, but nevertheless administrators and adjudicators consistently, in your accounts, bully them out of those rights that they have to ownership.
2: In a way, you very succinctly captured one of the most important findings in the book. At the heart of my book is a growing tension between ordinary Chinese in pursuit of individual freedoms and a state seeking to cap such freedoms. On the one hand, divorce has indeed become much more common in China today, By the end of 2019, the crude divorce rate, and that is the number of divorces per 1,000 individuals, has climbed steadily from 0.2 in 1978 to 3.2 four decades later. By the way, in that same year, the United States saw a rate of 2.7 divorces, per 1,000 people. Uh, So comparatively speaking, more Chinese couples nowadays seem ready to terminate their marriages. On the other hand, the Chinese state has maintained a vested interest in controlling citizens' marriage and family life. Historically and ideologically speaking, there's just no reason for the PRC's ruling elites to let go of their control over citizens' intimate relationships. In fact, as early as in 1931, long before the Chinese Communist Party seized power at a national stage, it had promulgated legal rules to regulate marital practices. The very first national law the PRC put in place was the 1950 marriage law. Party leadership over time has built rich experiences in using the family as a locale as well as an instrument to advance its military, political, and economical agendas. In that sense, the of marriage has long been tied to the PRC's ruling. Ideologically speaking, a line of political thinking which projects a correlative relation between the family and the state, which ties the integrity of matrimony to the cohesion of the nation, has maintained its currency among the PRC's governing elites. If you're interested in this, just take a close look at Xi Jinping's frequent talk of Chinese family. Finally, in recent years, looming demographic crisis have prompted authorities to grapple with the practical importance of marriage once again. Several estimates speaks to the magnitude of the demographic challenges top decision makers face. In 2010, there were about 111 million Chinese age 65 and older, approximately 8.2% of the total population. By 2050, the portion of the population age 65 or older will jump to That's over 400 million individuals. In other words, the Chinese population is aging rapidly. In the meantime, birth rates have dropped to the lowest in decades. Just days ago, on everyone's lips was the news that the Chinese population for the first time in six decades has shrunk, a trend unlikely to reverse in the near future. These crises have forced the party leadership to use the judiciary to boister marriage as a public institution and to cap individual freedoms in divorce. It is against this backdrop that I analyze rural women's experiences in divorce litigation. As Nick, you just point out, much of my work revolves around how and why the court system and the legal profession, all too often fail to protect women's spousal, custodial, property, and land rights. Here I want to underscore certain nuance in the book. It is crucial to recognize how the PRC has tied its governance to the institution of marriage. On the other hand, I argue it is equally important to rank with authoritarian regime's limits in mining the utility of law and courts, among other forces and factors, state fragmentation. That is the reality of state actors harboring diverse interests, pursuing varied priorities, and often acting on competing and even conflicting perceptions can gravely complicate ruling elites' attempts to capitalize on legality. The PRC's grip on the bench, I should note, is hardly absolute or airtight. Small wonder that Chinese judges sometimes align their individual or organizational interests with those of the state, and sometimes they don't. This means that we must treat the judiciary as an organization and unpack what's going on at the organizational level. This also means we must closely examine individual judges' likes and dislikes. In short, I find it very rewarding to alternate between a macro, a meso, and a micro-level analysis by drawing on different types of data. And usually it is through this kind of alternation I figure out why judges or the judiciary routinely fail to protect women's lawful rights.
1: So tell us a bit more about the kinds of data that you generated, where, and how you generated them.
2: For the first part of my Project, I mostly conducted ethnographic research. Uh, I spent roughly 20 months in Weifeng County, and during those 20 months, I spent roughly a thousand hours observing legal professionals' interactions with women, men on the verge of divorce. I also conducted 111 interviews with litigants, their counsel, judges, court clerks, village leaders, and government officials. Another important source of data was court records. I managed to put together a sample of divorce cases, and I examined thousands of pages of court records. And the fourth source of data was government publications. Some of these were strictly internal memorandums produced by local state actors. Some of them were for public use. So the fourth source of data allowed me to explore how local state actors responded to marital disputes as well as other popular grievances as a grassroots level. So that's what I did between 2006 and 2011. Starting from 2017 and onward, I dipped my toes in historiography more and more. And I did this in part because Over time, I came to grapple with the limitations of ethnography. It became just very clear to me that by combining ethnographic and archival data, I could deepen my understanding of Chinese law and politics. So in about three years, I used three online sources. To conduct archival research, I can say more. But my point here is this book, Marriage on Bonds, very much allows me to combine two uh, different research methods ethnography and historiography.
1: I think listeners by now will be getting a really, a strong sense of the depth, density, and diversity of the data that you've generated and the sophistication of your methods. And if we have time, I'd like to come back to those. But before we do that, At the outset, you were gently critical, as you are in the book, of uh, studies that we might bracket under the rubric of authoritarian legality. You say that they don't give culture its due. Why is that? And what do you think that your book does that others have failed to do in bringing forward this culturalist perspective?
2: This is a really good question. In fact, I'm still processing my thoughts. Ever since you and I met last November, I've been thinking about if I have overstated certain problems with the literature on authoritarian legality. And for the moment, my assessment is in the book, I did not overstate this problem. And here's why. The literature has entrenched both functionalism and rational choice theory. Neither of these two is well known for its sensitivity to culture. It is no exaggeration to say that for the most part, the literature on authoritarian legality could not care less about culture. Of course, there are always exceptions to every rule. Occasionally, researchers do center culture especially legal consciousness, discourses, and ideas in their scrutiny of law and politics in non-democratic contexts. In my book, I list several exceptions, including your book on law and order in Myanmar. But even among these exceptions, few attribute causal priority to culture Even fewer go as far as to specify cultural causal mechanisms in shaping policy formation or institutional changes. And this is regrettable, given what has been going on in sociology and in political science. Since the 1980s, cultural sociologists like Anne Switzer, Jeffrey Alexander, Phil Smith, and John Campbell have felt the need to demonstrate that culture has causal efficacy and should be employed as explanatory factors to account for certain political outcomes. Similarly, in political science, people like Lisa Wedinian have called researchers to use culture as either independent or dependent variables to flesh out causal explanations And of course, I think I will just take this opportunity to talk more about the differences between your work and mine. And I believe both you and I take culture very seriously in our studies of law and courts in non-democratic contexts. But there are also important differences. My understanding is that in your book, you place semantics front and center, Particularly, you focus on how state actors engage in meaning-making processes. I, on the other hand, didn't set out to capture meanings. Early in my book, I quote sociologist Ann Switler, saying, the central problematic for cultural analysts is not necessarily to parse the content of culture, but rather to uncover how social actors use cultural materials. That quote attest to a deliberate conceptual decision on my part. If it is up to me to sort cultural studies, I will identify three distinct camps. I will put some works into the first camp, for they all focus on the form of culture, especially the formal relations between signs, symbols, and signifiers. In the second camp, I will place studies that examine the content of culture, particularly the meanings contained in semiotic forms. Finally, in the third camp, I will bring together research that explores how actors put cultural materials to use. Your book, in my opinion, leans towards the second camp, and mine fits into the third. Let me explain why I am classifying cultural studies, not because I'm so fixated on the definition of culture per se. What really concerns me is the question of how researchers, starting out with different conceptualizations of culture, may land in different observations and arguments about authoritarian states. A comparison of your book and mine may shed some light on that question. For instance, you consider culture chiefly as meanings state actors promote, while I emphasize culture as the varied course of actions through which state authorities turn semiotic materials into governing devices and methods. I repeatedly show that the PRC's ruling elites dip their toes in cultural appropriation by mobilizing diverse cultural resources to solve problems and to streamline their governance. As I shift the thrust of my analysis from meanings to the varied ways actors use cultural materials, I come to discern much incoherence, inconsistency, and ineffectiveness among the PRC's ruling elites. By contrast, researchers who turn their critical gaze as meaning-making, I suspect, are more likely to find patterns rather than randomness, coherence rather than incoherence, consistency, not inconsistency, effectiveness as opposed to ineffectiveness among authoritarian rulers. After all, how many researchers set out to look for chaos, randomness, or meaninglessness in cultural production and consumption? Ultimately, this leads me to wonder whether researchers knowingly or unknowingly open themselves to selection bias in case studies. Right now, I'm in the process of developing some working hypotheses as I deepen my literature review. Basically, I hypothesize that cultural studies in the second camp are more likely to locate positive cases. Positive in the sense that in these cases, political elites effectively manipulate culture to their advantage. Scholarship in the third camp by comparison, stands a better chance of building negative cases in which ruling elites for short of forming coherent or consistent schemes to instrumentalize semiotic resources. Long story short, how we conceptualize culture may have crucial implications on our study of the state authoritarian or not. And this is a line of inquiry I would like to extend following the publication of my book.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: A reminder to listeners that this is New Books in Interpretive, Political and Social Science with me, and Nick Cheeseman, talking with Kurt Lee about Marriage Unbound, and we'll be back after a short message from a sponsor before the break, you were engaging with my own work, and I'm extremely grateful to you for doing that. But one of the things which I keep coming back to is that in the preliminary discussion we were having, you did say that one of the things you didn't want to do was try to capture meanings behind categories like socialist rule of law, let alone one with Chinese characteristics. And then instead, you wanted to emphasize the historiographic approach that you took and the incoherence that often comes from your observation then in statecraft and legal development. I suppose for me the question though is Aren't you ultimately still doing work in making inferences about the character of the intersubjective meaning making, in particular through the ethnographic work that you're doing, but also beyond the ethnography through the archival work and the quantitative dimensions of your research as well, it seems to me that you're still reaching for... Patterns and you're still reaching for the possibility of causal inferences that would bring you to a point which I which I think is not so far removed perhaps from some of the work that you're you're criticizing. Yes.
2: Yeah, so let me just quickly clarify that I believe this question is about meaning making, and you basically ask me, "Hey, Kelly, you argue you focus on practice." or Mm -hmm. cultural practices. At some level, I would admit, how could practice be devoid of any meanings, right? You study practice, then you have to understand the meanings contained in such practices. So I would say that both empirically and analytically, we cannot really separate cultural practices from meaning-making. But on the other hand, my main concern is when researchers focus so much on meaning making they're more likely to see coherence and consistency maybe even effectiveness on the part of political elites but on the other hand if you tweak your conceptualization a bit when you put more emphasis on culture as practice as performance This is where you will realize state actors, especially authoritarian rulers, are far from as effective, as coherent, as some of the literature suggests. So I guess that's a point I was trying to get across. I'm deeply torn about on the one hand, both you know, people like Ann Switzer or Lisa Wadeen suggest that we should pay close attention to meanings, that interpretivist tradition, right? On the other hand, these are also social scientists who argue we should develop causal arguments, we should spell out causal mechanisms. And I just don't know between these two very different traditions. One is hermeneutic. The other one is more or less positivist. I don't really know what kind of epistemological problems or implications there may be. And so far, I've not seen either political scientists or sociologists fully spell out these epistemological or methodological implications. So that's where I'm stuck.
1: I think one of the tasks for scholars in interpretive political science presently is to do exactly the kind of work that you were just outlining and that's to say to offer a stronger account for those who are interested in it as to how interpretivist approaches do enable causal inferential work. It's just that it's operating according to a different set of standards and therefore we need different criteria for its assessment. Maybe we still have a panel one day to discuss exactly this point. I'll keep an eye out for a piece of work that might enable it to happen let me return to one thing that came up earlier in the discussion that i would like to ask you a little bit more about and that's your writing practice you say in the book that you hope to foster a style of writing that's capable of conveying experiential knowledge Don't social scientists across a range of traditions, some of which we've been alluding to, do that kind of work already? How is your own writing conveying that experiential knowledge? And what's the relation between the conceptual and the experiential in your book?
2: Yes, thank you for asking this really thoughtful question. On the one hand, just as a researcher, as a reader, I am acutely aware there is an aesthetic aspect of scholarship, although we rarely talk about it. I know I have always appreciated good writing. I know many of my colleagues also do that. But social scientists don't always get together together and say, hey, let's talk about the craft of writing, per se. The only exception maybe, we sometimes organize workshops to figure out how to do grant writing. So that's the first thing on my mind. And the second is you're right. A lot of social scientists produce experiential knowledge. It's just that the writing does not generate certain effects. And let me give you one Example, recently I read an article about parental maintenance litigation in certain parts of the world. I will not name names. And the researcher made sincere effort to convey this finding that litigants oftentimes suffer from psychological and emotional strains, and you just can't really easily sort litigants into losers and winners because litigation is not always about material gains and losses. So this is to say that cognitively speaking, I know exactly what this researcher is trying to get at. But as I read through that article deep down, the writing just didn't generate, didn't stir any emotions inside me because it's a standard social scientific writing. So I guess at some level, as a researcher, as a writer, I harbor certain dissatisfactions with the kind of writing I typically see in sociology, and political science. And I've been thinking about how I can write better. So readers would have very different reaction to my work. Hopefully their experience would be visceral, you know. So that's what I try to achieve in this book by selectively adopting certain skills and techniques. And to this day, I'm still uh, grappling with the challenges and difficulties. For example, when you move from non-creative writing to creative writing, How do you draw the line between fiction and nonfiction and how far can you go in creative imagination? Right. Because after a certain point, it becomes a a researcher fabricating or polishing too much. So there are just a lot of ethical and methodological issues on my mind, and I have not thought through these issues.
1: It's clear that although you've not sorted through them, uh, you've certainly thought about them. And it's also the case that your writing is tremendously evocative. Uh, I found myself reading your book at times uh, very much drawn into the narratives of struggle and your descriptions of the experiences that the women lit against in the courtrooms, the way that they're chastised by judges and the sense of injustice that they feel having come to these courts expecting that they would come out of them with at least some modicum of recognition and very often finding that that is not the case. You spent a lot of time in and around these courtrooms I get asked by students sometimes for advice on doing ethnographic work in and around courtrooms, and I find that there's not nearly as much written on this topic as I'd have expected. Could you offer a little advice based on your experience as to how to do this type of research? How did you prepare yourself for the ethnographic work that you did? What surprises did you have, and what advice would you have for others interested to do the same
2: Initially, when I was working on the book manuscript, I thought I would include a methodological appendix. I thought in the appendix, I would talk more about my experiences as an ethnographer, perhaps as someone who have tried archival research. But in the end, I didn't produce that massological appendix in part because I just questioned myself I just didn't believe that I could say anything new or useful to other ethnographers and your questioning has prompted me to think about oh well, maybe I can offer something so I have a few tips I suppose the first one is, is that do not over identify with one's research subjects. From time to time, this happened to me when I was in the field, and this is quite understandable. After all, we ethnographers tend to spend considerable time with our research subjects, and we tend to develop genuine feelings towards the people we study, especially the individuals who are part of the marginalized and the disempowered. Here, my point is not that we shouldn't have any emotional connections with research subjects. Rather, I'm suggesting that such connections make it harder to question or even problematize research subjects' voices, perspectives, and experiences. As a result, we may end up taking interview findings at face value and eventually missing out on the opportunity to rise above individual experiences and perspectives. Practically, this means we need to harbor a healthy dose of skepticism over what we hear, what we see, and what we learn in the field, regardless of how we feel about our research subjects. So the first lesson is always be skeptical. My second suggestion has a lot to do with archival research, less to do with ethnographic work. Uh, I would suggest that whenever one can access primary sources do not rely on secondary sources. Put it more bluntly, trust no one, not even well-established famous scholars. Let me use one concrete example to illustrate this. In chapter three, I used certain findings to challenge the prior research on people's mediation. I was able to produce some original findings and arguments precisely because I didn't stop at secondary sources, especially scholarly publications. Although I could have simply cited these studies, I insisted on using primary sources and double-checking other researchers' data compilation. Those efforts, quite time-consuming, I have to admit, proved rewarding. I came to realize that previous studies converged and reinforced certain viewpoints, not because they all produce the same findings, but because they all cited the same person who pioneered the study of Chinese law in the United States. So I guess the takeaway is that no one is infallible. Thus, it's crucial to identify and use the most reliable sources of information. The third thing on my mind is about misinformation and disinformation. Uh, People everywhere lie, but in some contexts, lying becomes routinized, politicized, and even institutionalized. For that reason, on the one hand, disinformation can be very damaging to research. On the other hand, disinformation can present a precious window onto the phenomenon we want to understand. I wish I could hand out a magic bullet capable of fixing the problem of disinformation once and for all. Of course, that's not really possible. What I can do here is to share a lesson I've learned from my field research. In the introduction of the book, I describe the lesson as follows. Over time, I come to believe that there's no such thing as a perfect crime in data distortion. The more systematically and expansively state authorities engage in creating, amplifying, and rooting disinformation, the more traces they could leave behind. And the more trace evidence we researchers muster, the more we engage in data triangulation by cross-checking findings from multiple sources, interviews, observations, archival inquiries, and analysis of media coverage. The closer we inch toward truth, thus rendering ourselves less susceptible to disinformation and misinformation. And this leads to my final point about data collection, ethnographic research, and so on. It's about the importance of diversifying data sources and about juxtaposing various findings in writing. Take chapter six as an example. In that chapter, I draw on seven or eight types of data, including courtroom observations, interviews, judicial statistics, court case records, newspapers, photographs, internal memorandums produced by local state agents other than judges and court clerks, and scholarly works. Combining different data sources allowed me to produce a multi-layer story basically showing courtroom interactions from multiple angles and this is something i will keep trying in the future because i keep thinking again earlier today i mentioned that i'm a huge fan of cinema and in cinema there's something called the Rashomon effect i don't know if i pronounce the word correctly or not it comes from the japanese language And this is an effect, it's a storytelling and also a writing method in cinema in which an event is given contradictory interpretations or descriptions by the individuals involved, providing different perspectives and points of view of the same event. So this technique basically allows filmmakers to exam the same event from multiple angles. And that's exactly what we need to do in ethnographic research on dispute resolution. But in order to produce that effect, researchers need data from multiple parties, multiple angles. So my final point is think about how we can strategically juxtapose different types of data and also juxtapose different perspectives to create a really layered storytelling.
1: The first point that you made about not over-identifying with your subjects, I think is an important one, but it also raises some interesting questions for me with regards to your own work, because you are siding with the women litigants in your book for reasons that are both perhaps personal and political. And in doing that, you reminded me of Howard Becker's famous article, Whose Side Are We On?, in which she would say, well, that's the right thing to do. There is no such thing as no side. So take the side that your personal and political commitments dictate and then use the resources of social science to avoid distortions. And it seems to me that you were speaking just then to some of the ways that you have Done that. But I wonder if there's anything else that you would say about the stance that you had with regards to these litigants, in as much as the orientation that you have and the windows that you open up for the readers throughout the book are from the viewpoint of the women litigants. Mm.
2: Again, this is a really complex issue, and I'm still processing my experiences. And what I did in my book, in all substantive chapters, I start by telling a story of a particular woman. In that way, I try to foreground rural women's experiences inside or outside courtrooms. In that sense, you can absolutely say that I take side with these women. But on the other hand, for each chapter... I didn't exclusively or primarily relied on women's testimonies or interview data to build my case, to advance theoretical arguments. Again, if you look closely enough, you realize oftentimes in order to argue what is the PRC's ruling elites have been up to, in order to explain what judges have been doing, I use many other data sources. In a way, I think this is me trying to make sure that I would not over identify the women in my study. I would not limit my vista by focusing too much on individual experiences or individual perspectives, because even the best kind of research subjects we can find, even with the best intention, research subjects can only share their knowledge, their experience from particular angle, right? And my belief is on the one hand, we need to capture these perspectives we need to humanize, uh, dignify such perspectives. On the other hand, as researchers, we also need to rise above such individual perspectives.
1: this book was 15 years in the making. You've mentioned already some of your current thinking and reading. Is there another book project in the wings or already underway?
2: Yeah, I bought airplane tickets after three years of pandemic, finally. I know for sure that in late March, I will fly to China to resume field research. Truth is, right now, I'm feeling really rusty. And my next project will focus on LGBTQ rights and impact litigation. By impact litigation, I'm talking about the kind of litigations LGBTQ groups initiate so they can not only contest their individual rights, but to bring about progressive changes within and outside Chinese courts. So that's something I would like to do. Another thing on my mind is really technology has fundamentally transformed how we do research, right? And certainly in the study of Chinese land politics, a lot of my colleagues these days turn to big data, computational science, and this online database, which contains millions of court decisions. I have mixed feelings about this particular trend, but one thing I would like to find out more is how the digitalization of archival records may have opened new space for research. In the past, if you want to check out an article published by the People's Daily, you literally have to find a library and go through a lot of troubles to locate that article. These days, just a few clicks, you will find that article very easily, very quickly. So in the future, I would definitely think about how to further combine my efforts to talk to people on the ground with the kind of digital archives available out there.
1: Currently, thank you very much for joining me on New Books in Interpretive, Political, and Social Science to discuss Marriage Unbound.
2: Thank you so much. These questions are so thought-provoking. I'm afraid I have to keep digesting, keep processing a lot of your questions.
1: Well, you've provided answers that call for a lot of thinking and digestion as well. So thank you. And listeners, this is the 14th episode in the series, and you can find all of the others on the series homepage. You can reach that by clicking the button for academic partners on the New Books Network in the top menu bar of the website. And you can also hear these episodes wherever you get your podcasts via our host channel, that's New Books in Political Science.